Hey everyone, welcome to the Mobile User Acquisition Show. In the Mobile User Acquisition Show, we talk about how to use mobile user acquisition strategies to grow your app quickly and capital efficiently. The Mobile User Acquisition Show is presented by me, Shamant Rao, mobile growth leader and founder and CEO of the mobile growth consulting firm, Rocketship HQ. Each episode includes strategies, tips, and pointers from the leading edge of mobile user acquisition that you can use to unlock tremendous growth for your app in a sustainable and capital-efficient manner. Our guest today is Danica Wilkinson. Danica is a product marketer at Social Point, where she is responsible for the overall high-level marketing strategy of one of their games. She strategizes all aspects of game marketing and guides UA specialists in performance analysis and optimizations. In today's conversation, Danica goes deep into the specifics of the creative process and outlines how their very different processes for Facebook and other channels have been dramatically effective. She walks us through not just how her team's tests are structured on a day-to-day basis, but also about how this testing process has changed the team's workflow dramatically for the better. I'm very excited to welcome Danica Wilkinson to the Mobile User Acquisition Show. Danica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Danica, I'm excited to have you because we've certainly crossed paths virtually, even though we just found out we are less than a mile-ish away. Every time I've heard you speak, I've learned so much. I feel like you have bring bring a lot of insight and certainly that's what struck me even the last time we spoke last week definitely which is why i was like we gotta have you on the show to ask you all the questions that i feel like i want to ask (laughs) thank you very nice of you to say (laughs) certainly certainly right Uh, to get started we're going to talk about creative tests and Uh, how you run them, which again was something I took notes on from the last time we spoke. When you're running creative tests outside of Facebook, what channels do you use and why do you do that? This is something that I think a lot of companies probably do where they will run their creative testing on Facebook separate to creative testing for other networks and DSPs. In our case, we do it because we often see different results between what works on Facebook and what works everywhere else. So basically, we use a, a custom uh, DSP called Dataseat to do our creative testing. Um, and the reason why we started doing this was because previously we were working with another live programmatic partner who required us to run pre-testing on their platform before we were able to push our creators into live campaigns. And basically, we found that process to be really slow, really expensive really clunky and we were testing for months and months and months and maybe we came up with one creative winner in all that time. Um, so the idea was maybe we can put this kind of pre-filter for pushing these uh, creatives into live testing and basically just eliminate everything that's not going to work and make sure that we're only testing the absolute best creatives with this programmatic partner. So we started to do that. And within three rounds, which took about four weeks, 
we already had three creative winners after six months with maybe just one. So we started to roll those results out onto our other networks and also our other programmatic partners as well. And about 80% of the time, I would say, because it's pretty difficult to have everything 100%, we would see that those same winners were effective in our live campaigns as well. Well, that's impressive because it would appear that there can be so much variability in performance across networks. So clearly you guys have these winners that seem to be consistently winning everywhere. Can you explain the mechanics of how this test is set up on the custom DSP? Because uh, I think there's a specific way you run it, which I think contributes to why this is effective. Yeah, so the good thing is we're not really limited by the amount of creatives that we can test at any one time. But normally we would be testing maybe four or five at once against a control. And we purchase a set amount of impressions per creative. Um, we send the DSP a list of sub-publishers. They're usually more or less 100 sub-publishers where we have acquired the most users in the last 30 days. We test those creatives against the control and basically we take any creatives that have a similar or a higher IPM than the control in that specific test and we roll them out into the other life partners. We find that some partners are more sensitive to creative change than others. So we will kind of rank them in order of lowest to highest risk and we'll roll out those, those winners into the lowest risk partners first. If we see that the performance is good there, then we yeah. basically have more confidence to then test them in the kind of higher risk or the more sensitive partners. Right. Can you elaborate on what you mean by sensitive to creative changes? There are some partners that have quite a strong algorithm when it comes to adding new creatives where they might send a small amount of impressions to a new creative, figure out if it's working or not, and then decide whether it's going to start sending a larger chunk of your investment there. But there are other partners that maybe are a little bit less advanced in that sense. I won't name names, but you will sometimes find that, you know, you add a, a creative to a campaign. The performance isn't good, but the, the partner just consistently sends spend to this creative anyway, and it can really affect your performance. So with those kinds of partners, we will always leave them last and we'll We'll only add the new creative to that partner if we're really confident about its performance because we've seen it work time and time again on everything else. Yeah, I like that gradation of risk because if you're really, really certain it's something something's really good, that's the only case in which you roll it out everywhere. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. And we did talk about how the creators that win outside of Facebook tend to be very different from ones that do win in Facebook. Can you speak to how ideas are generated for creative concepts? Yeah, so sometimes we do. It's not to say that the creatives that work the best are always different. Sometimes we are lucky and we have creatives that work really well on absolutely everything, even Facebook. We're very fortunate to have creative teams on a product level, on a game level, who know the game inside and out. And it's basically their job on a monthly basis to... Uh, present maybe a dozen different concepts that they've come up with. And from those, we might pick maybe six to eight concepts that we want to go ahead with and we want to produce in the next month. Um, so it's up to them to decide which ones they're going to produce in-house and which ones they're going to outsource. And the ideas, they can come from a number of different sources. So we could get them from 
combinations of, of different concepts that have worked in the past. We could get them from competitors. So, you know, looking at AppAni or looking at a Facebook ads library or even inspired by creators that are working for other games inside the company. And on top of that, we have really open communication with our creative team. So always, if I have an idea, if one of my UA specialists has an idea, somebody on the product team or any other a team in the company has an idea, we're always just sending through the, our ideas to the creative team and they're adding them to the list to present in the brief at the end of the month. Sure. So it's my experience that ideas typically with, with marketers and creators are never in shortage, right? Because you, know, you can think of ideas in the shower, you can think of ideas anytime, you come up with ideas. Mm. How does the creative team figure out or prioritize which ones to work on? Is that a process? How, how does that happen? Yeah, so we're actually trying to move towards more of a hypothesis-driven system. So basically making assumptions and asking questions about what has worked in the past and also what hasn't worked in the past, and then using that to build a hypothesis to say, okay, I think, for example, that by simplifying uh, this creative, it will work better because maybe users don't understand what is the gameplay of our game or something like that. And that will improve the conversion and treating it kind of as scientific. So every creative test we do, we're trying to approve or disprove the hypothesis that we've come up with. We have these brief meetings because the marketers on our side and the UA specialists, we're seeing day in, day out what is working, what isn't, and kind of identifying patterns Whereas maybe the creative team don't always have that visibility. So the idea is that every week we have a meeting, we talk about what's working, what's not, and our theories about why. And then when we have this creative brief meeting at the end of the month, the final call about what creatives are going to be produced out of all of these ideas that they present um, is down to the markers themselves. So we will say, okay, these are out of the 12 ideas you presented, we want these six because we think that based on our hypotheses and based on what we've seen, this is what's going to work the best. Sure. And I like how you're asking why these are working, because I think that's an important factor in making sure you're just not spraying and praying and that a creator does indeed work. To switch gears a bit, you talked about how the creative testing process works outside of Facebook. Uh, you know, you have this very structured process. Mm-hmm. How does the process on Facebook differ? Uh, from the process you described? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are several key differences, but I would say that the main one is kind of the objective. So I guess when it comes to creative testing outside of Facebook, we're specifically looking for what creative has the winning IPM, what creative has an IPM that is the same as or higher than our current control. Whereas on Facebook, Basically, what we're doing is looking for what creatives are terrible, what is absolutely terrible that we want to eliminate, and anything that is okay or really good if you're lucky, but anything that is just okay, we see that as kind of a low risk to push it into live campaigns because at the end of the day, if you are doing creative testing in an MAI campaign, um, you don't know how that's going to perform when you push it into an AEO or a VO campaign. If you have an extremely low IPM, like below one or maybe even below two on an MAI campaign, it's pretty safe to say that if you put that into an AEO campaign or a VO campaign, it's not going to take off. It's not going to work. But if it's okay, it's not amazing, but it's not bad, then it's a pretty good candidate to move into your live campaigns. The other thing with Facebook is that 
we don't test against a control. Whereas when we test for other partners, we do. And the reason for this is because Facebook is always biased towards creators that have historical data. Um, so it, it doesn't matter if in theory the new creators you're testing should be the best. They will never beat a control on Facebook because Facebook already knows everything about that control. It knows who to show it to, when and where. So the idea with testing on Facebook is not to split tests or anything like that. It's to warm up the creatives in an environment that is the most similar to a real live campaign environment. And basically we let the algorithm decide what is the best. We don't try to fight it. We just try to work with the algorithm as much as possible. Yeah, 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 definitely right. And yeah, uh, their stance when we've seen control ads that honk so much bandit, it's just hard to compete against it, which can be a good thing just because it's getting you stable and steady performance no matter what. But at some point, you're going to have to find new creators. And I think it makes complete sense to just not have the new ones compete against what's working already. Uh, and how do you think about the fact that something that's winning in MAI may not be the winner in value or AEO. So do you just run separate tests? How do you think about that? Yeah. So yeah, it goes back to what I was saying before. It's pretty obvious to say that if something has an absolutely terrible IPM in MAI, it's not going to work in AEO or VO because we have to remember at the end of the day, Facebook is rewarding quality. So for them, giving their users the best experience is what makes them money. So if you're trying to add a very low IPM creative into an AEO or VO campaign, Facebook is not going to reward you with the high quality audiences that in theory you're looking for with that campaign type. So that's on the one side. However, on the other side, when I talk about the potential to add creatives that in testing have an okay IPM as it's low risk, this is because perhaps in that creative itself, there is something in particular that might pique the interest of the kind of user that you're going after. And in this case, it would be a paying user. It's all about finding the balance. There have been times where we've had creatives that in MAI campaigns work amazingly. They scale up. They have an extremely high MAI, but they just simply don't resonate with the quality users that we're looking for in AEO and VO campaigns. And in the end, a lower IPM creative works better. But I've never had a case where there's been a creative that in MAI has had an absolutely terrible IPM and it's worked well in AEO. That's never happened. Right. So it's almost like a filtering (laughs) mechanism for your AEO and VO. So whatever passes your first stage of MAI goes to a second stage of testing, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. How do you think about extending the life of a winning ad, either by making variations or in any other way, that could be on Facebook or off Facebook. How do you think about that? Yeah, I guess there are a few different areas when when it comes to variations of a winning concept. Um, so the first and the most obvious one is, is localizations. So localizing the winning creative in all the languages that you're currently investing in. Sometimes you will see a difference in the things that perform well in English and the things that perform well in other languages. But more often than not, we see that the correlation is pretty clear. The second thing is going back and looking at things that have worked in the past and trying to combine that with your new concept. So if you have been fortunate enough to have a history of winning concepts, you'll probably already know different elements in those concepts that have worked and you'll be able to easily combine them with your new concept. 
And then the third area is basically trying to make as many iterations as you can. And one trap that I think a lot of people will fall into is making iterations that are too similar to the original. And if you were looking at these videos every single day or these playables every single day, to you, they look different. But to a user, they look like the exact same thing. Yeah. So yeah. you have to make sure that you play around with the most obvious elements, the colors, the backgrounds, the first three seconds, so that it looks different to the user uh, itself. And then going a little bit further into that, something else that we also make sure we look at is that we don't become too IPM blind, that we don't let focus on IPM and CPI, these really high funnel metrics take away from everything else post-install. So it's important to always be looking at your retention and looking at your LTV and thinking about, okay, if my retention might be a little bit lower than what I would like, I maybe want to include more gameplay into my video. Or maybe if I want to increase the LTV a little bit, I might play around with adding some more like casino style elements like coins and currency and that kind of thing. And that might be interesting to that segment of players, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which illustrates how much you can do to make variations of what's within. Because again, you don't always have to come up with something brand new. But even just by changing the treatment, changing the visual look and feel on what's working, there's just a lot of win and progress. There are a lot of wins to be had. It's a tough one. It's the age-old question of focus on iterations that are based on what we know already works or look for something completely new. It's difficult. Yeah. In terms of the creative team's time and effort, how is it balanced between coming up with something completely new versus building on something that is known to work? What we're moving towards at the moment is trying to outsource the iterations as much as possible. So basically when we identify a hit creative to activate a protocol that sends to an outsourcing agency instructions to make as many iterations of this video, this playable as possible and localizations on top of that. And that basically gives our internal team the time and the space and the energy to be thinking about new concepts and brainstorming and, and working on new things that are of a high quality. Um, we do have weekly sprint meetings, however, um, and if we see that, you know, there's an iteration that is really urgent, maybe, for example, something is fatiguing and we, we need something really fast, then we might, in some instances, prioritize an iteration with our internal team as opposed to outsourcing it. You can maintain your performance by extending the shelf life of your winning concepts for several months. However, if you really want to take your performance to the next level and scale to the next level, you have to find a new winning concept. That's basically the be all and end all. Why do you think that is? Just from past experience, when you find a new winning concept, you will see the difference notably because you'll suddenly be able to increase the scale. You'll have a lot more margin for increasing um, the scale as well when it comes to ROI. Um, Eventually, that'll start to fatigue and you can just ride that wave by making a lot of iterations. But if you want that big boost of scale and performance again, the next concept, you have to find something different. Totally. Have you seen any elements that are common to creators that really hit it out of the park, that are clear, clear winners, what 
might be some of the things that characterize such creators? Yeah, I think it really depends on on the game that you're working on and the genre of game. I don't want to give too much away, obviously. Uh, if people really want to see the creators that we're using, they have the tools to do it. Yeah. But I think that one thing that is really important is, again, to put yourself in, in the shoes of the user. I have a really strong player persona and don't just create things that look nice to you as a marketer and as somebody who is in the industry. This is something that we had to turn around a lot on our side and kind of make the, I suppose, force the artists to question their integrity as artists and literally ask them to create things that they thought were really ugly because we found that that resonated better with our audience than things that for us we thought were really beautiful and high quality weren't working as well as things that were ugly and flashy and tacky. Yeah, we have a joke internally on our team that oftentimes if we have multiple creators, the ugliest one will win. Uh, the one we think is least likely to win ends up winning. So that's almost a contrarian way of predicting what could actually win. Yeah, and that's where like a player persona really came into a line of thinking with that because we started to think, well, why do these ugly, tacky creators work well? Uh, and we started to investigate and we realized, well, actually the, the target audience that, that we're going after, the best audience for us, they're also really into casino games and like um, mm-hmm. solitaire and that kind of thing, which are games that typically aren't the most beautiful. They tend to have a lot yeah. of kind of flashy graphics and block colors and things that are going on. And therefore, that kind of ad is the most attractive to that kind of user. Right. Right. I think a similar example, I think, would be in the health and fitness piece, because there's a reason infomercials do well. Uh, They tend to be very in your face, very tacky. And people we know that have tried beautiful ads have failed just because the audience likes tacky ads the audience wants to see that and certainly i think that makes a lot of sense danica this has been very instructive and uh, like as every time i speak to you i've said there's so much that i want to take away to our own work this is perhaps a good place for us to wrap before we do that can you tell folks how they can find out more about you and everything you do sure you can get in touch with me on linkedin or if you want to find out more about the games that we have at Social Point, you can just go to socialpoint.es. You'll see our, our three collaborative games there, which are Dragon City, Monster Legends, and my personal favorite, Word Life. Excellent. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Danica, for being at the Mobile User Acquisition Show. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Mobile User Acquisition Show. If any of this was helpful or instructive, I would love for you to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This podcast takes a ton of time, effort, and love to produce, and I deeply value every review and every piece of feedback that you share. Thank you for listening, and I will look forward to sharing our next episode soon.